Bob Cooney here. This is episode two of the Practicality of VR series from HTC Vive. And today we are going to tackle VR in training in the armed forces. And I'm really excited about this one. I'm a bit of a fanboy. So I want to go around the room and let you all introduce yourselves because you'll do a much better job than I will. Um, let's start. CJ, can you go first? Absolutely. Um, good afternoon, CJ Hale. I'm the director of programs from HTX Labs. And so we are a, a software company with an immersive learning platform that's headquartered out of Houston, Texas. So we have developed an immersive learning platform called uh, Impact, and we are working right now with the Department of Defense, the Air Force, and the Navy to help modernize how airmen and sailors are training in maintenance and pilot training primarily. So we allow them to go into a 3D environment and there's, there's multimodal ways of learning versus the traditional static displays that un unfortunately the DOD is still using. Daryl, how about you? What, do you? what do you do? What's your background? Yeah, so uh, my background, I'm a U.S. Army vet. After that, I spent about 10 years in the, on the commercial side and nuclear operations. We started our company in uh, 2016. I'm actually one of the co-founders and the CEO of our company, which is 3D Media. We're based in Thibodeau, Louisiana. We build virtual reality training and augmented reality human performance tools for uh, workers and warfighters in our nation. Our, our ultimate mission is to use cutting edge technology to ensure that our nation's workers and warfighters make it home safe at the end of every day. And, you know, technologies like virtual and augmented reality are phenomenal applications to, to achieve that goal. And that's what we do. We work with groups like ExxonMobil, the U.S. Air Force, and on and on. And we apply these technologies with a lot of UCD fundamentals, user-centered design fundamentals, and a number of applications. And like CJ, and in fact, we we do a lot of work with CJ and her team at HTX Labs, phenomenal team. We have a lot of focus on uh, maintainers, you know, so your your operators, the people who turn wrenches for a living, as well as air crews on the DOD side. I could just keep on talking, but I'm going to shut up and let you move on. <laughs> Thanks, Daryl. Michael Meyer, um, tell us about yourself. Uh, so I'm Sergeant Meyer. I'm a instructor in AETC stationed at Shepard Air Force Base. My primary role is educating weapons troops that are going through technical training to become, you know, a five level one day in our career field, which would be a highly qualified technician if you will, to work on aircraft to maintain their weapon system. My primary focus in a lot of this is increasing the modalities that we have available to us for training uh, and not just XR but immersion in general being able to apply to students in a different way where they can see components that we before weren't capable of doing without being able to expose that part before and my primary focus currently is trying to deploy that on an enterprise level here inside the 82nd training wing. Yeah, interesting. So look, I want to start with something, friends with uh, Dr. Tom Furness, who, you know, did early, 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 you know, immersive training VR for pilots with the, I believe it was with the Air Force, maybe, I don't know, 35, 40 years ago. It would seem like like this stuff came out of the military and research for training. And I get a sense that it's still kind of slow moving. What are some of the challenges? Let's start there with getting virtual reality technology implemented in the training systems that you guys are building and using. I have some background to kind of drop into that. I highly believe the reason it's a slow moving beast, and you were correct, it did come out of the military. Like the whole training and simulation is a derivative from military objectives. We've been doing training and simulation since the 1940s from projection models of 
you know, smoke and mirrors essentially to try to simulate that same goal because the cost of operations is ascertainingly high, right? In XR itself, there was early beginnings in DUD, but I think that early adoption rate has occasionally kind of caused some inner turmoil. A good story from a friend of mine, he's an aerial gunner, and his first exposure to XR was in its very infinite stages. So it was very visually induced motion sickness. So it really wasn't conductive to the people using it. And I think that creates a lot of backlash, especially in DoD. They leverage their first experiences with it. And then the secondary issue is since XR is also viewed as simulation and training, and we have such a huge history with that and pilot-based training, they kind of make similes, but they're two different kind of program objectives. Because when you talk simulation, you want to model the real world to the accuracy of, you know, a thousand. But in training, we don't need such stark reality. We need comparisons. And I think that's the big limit back there. So, Bob, if I may, kind of piggybacking yeah. on what Sergeant Meyer was was providing his insight, I think accessibility now. So, technology is so rapidly changing how what's at what's available to us. And so, when we think of models and sims, we think of high cost uh, simulators that the government owns that are they're not accessible to everyone. They're not available twenty four seven. And right now, we're seeing the paradigm shift where where companies like HTX Labs and 3D Media, we have technology available where the airmen and the sailors, uh, the Marines, the, the soldiers, they can access, you know, immersive content 24-7. So it can be outside of the classroom. So as they're looking at their op tempo and they're trying to fit in as much as they can during the duty day and balance deployments, that now we're making training accessible for for the individual, um, whether it, it be through a tablet or whether a headset. And I think one of the, the challenges we have is the DOD catching up with guidelines and policies that allow these technologies to be used. And so it's just kind of, it's quickly changed over the last, I'd say 10 years, really the last five years. And it's now getting the Department of Defense to understand what capabilities out there and how we can make it accessible through Wi-Fi, through the schoolhouse, as well as the individuals on their own time. Yeah, cool. So, so let's talk about that. There's this, you know, this thing called ATO that everybody has to deal with. So who wants to tackle that first and explain to the audience who might not be familiar with some of the rules and regulations and the things that you have to do to get into this market and to be successful in this market. What is ATO and why does it matter? So an ATO is an authority to operate. So as we're looking, anything that connects to the government network has to have proper security measures to protect the, the infrastructure. So to obtain an ATO, it, it's where you're meeting the security requirements that are set up, whether it be through the Department of Defense, through DISA, and predominantly you're going to work with your MAGCOM A6 team. And, and those are your IT um, gurus. They're going to help guide you through what you need to be in compliant with to ensure that your system um, has the proper security measures in place that it can run on, whether it be an Air Force network, on the Navy's network, any, any DOD secured network, whether it be the unclassed or the high side. Yeah. And, and I'll add to that, CJ, that was 
great explanation is that while any ATO is quite an accomplishment, right? Any ATO that you get, all ATOs are not created equal either. As CJ spoke of, there are different levels, right? And the IL levels is one example of that, where you have IL1 all the way through, I believe, IL5. And that speaks to the level of security that you're authorized to, you have the authority to operate with, right? That level of security and, and classification. And at the risk of making a fool of myself, I won't go into it any deeper than that because that's for smarter people to talk about than me. So, but there are a number of different classifications and not all, not all ATOs are created equal, but regardless, an ATO at any level is quite an accomplishment for any company or any, any group, because there are, it's, it's quite a hill to climb. I'll tell you. <laughs> and, and does each component in a solution have to, have to go through that? Um, you know, like, like, is there a barrier? What's the barrier to entry? It, it I guess. And yeah, it, it really it depends on the, it depends on the architecture of your particular solution, you know, hardware solutions, software solutions are obviously different barriers. And then the different layers of a solution and the architecture associated with that, there are different, again, if it was as simple as a, as a single road that you go down and a checklist, then it would be, it would be awesome, but that's just not the case. And every, every part has to be, has to be evaluated. And there's, there's a risk management framework that's associated with all, with all of those that has to be done and, and submitted, approved. So if it were as simple as, as just a clear path and a checklist, everyone's lives would be a whole lot simpler. But the fact is that we're dealing with things that are of high, I say we as a whole, anyone who is going down the ATO process, it's complex for a reason in many cases. Should, could it be simplified in some? Probably, but again, I don't have the answer to that. <laughs> I'm just throwing I'm just throwing out bombs there, right? So, Tax right, code so. could probably be simplified too, right. but I would add to that, the complexity is also derivative of matter of opinion as well. And I don't mean that in a way to be derogatory in any sense. It's just people have a different interpretations of what's written in paper. And when you have different match comms and then those match comms, those A6 offices have the same tier level of authority over their slice and fraction in the RMF, one ATO may not travel across match comms because they don't interpret that it's an ATO for their section. And the CATO or continuous ATO was supposed to be transferable, but Again, the ATO is interpreted by that authority in that MASHCOM, so they may not accept it. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the adoptability does suffer because we see no adoptability between MASHCOMs and we also see no adoptability between services as well. And I think that really is impeding because just because you got an ATO just means you have it in this pocket of a cell. And I think that adds to the controversy. So I want to take this in two different directions. You talked about different services and I want to get back to the some of the complexity of having to build solutions. I think CJ, you mentioned you're working with the multiple branches of the military with similar solutions. What what are some of the complexities and the challenges of building a solution that you can then, I think I might have hit a I might have hit a, a hot point here with dealing with multiple branches of the military. How do you deal with that? The best thing we can do is the simplest thing and that's crosstalk. And and what we can do is connect our customers. So connect our Air Force customers with our Navy customers because they have the same challenges. They wear different uniforms, they have different mission sets, but it's still they're they're trying to accomplish how to integrate new technologies and modernize their training. So one thing we do at HTX Labs is we offer to connect. Uh, we, we're working with the team out at Randolph with the Air Force, and then we have a team down at Corpus Christi, NAS Corpus Christi. So we're looking at a couple, you know, two hours apart, but they have the same struggles and making that connection. Um, granted, they have different chain of commands and different policies in place, but they all fall under the Department of Defense. So they're all answering to the chief information officer. They're all trying to obtain the correct 
I guess, approvals to operate on their networks. So I think it's just tearing down those stovepipes. And the more we can do that and understand the pain points that are going across the services, that if we can look at enterprise level solutions, not only in the services, but bring them up to DC. And it's really in the Pentagon, there needs to be more crosstalk on, on how we modernize as a team. Yeah, I, I see, I see Daryl smirking over there. He's got, you, you want to add anything to that, Daryl? No, I, I crosstalk in the Pentagon. It makes me smile. CJ hit the nail on the head is that communications is, is key, right? Every single branch has their own mission. Every single branch has their own charter. But ultimately, we're talking about, as a country, we're talking about modernization in technology in the DOD. We're talking about moving things forward, innovation. We're talking about accelerate, change, or lose, th- those type of concepts. And and if you go back, and this is not new, I'm not, I'm not preaching to anyone and this is not new to anyone any any military person knows logistics wins wars right logistics is one of the keys to logistics is communications it's alignment of mission it's understanding intent and it's aligning resources uh plans tactics strategies not necessarily in that order all towards that ultimate objective this is so easy to say from the outside now but like if you look at the military because it's not a corporation but if you look at it in terms of a technology corporation right if the military were run with with an okr framework or objectives and key results framework the objectives would be very clear and then each level downward would align their key results and their objectives to that but it's not that simple <laughs> it, it never will be that simple because we because it is military. And so as companies who who are committed to serving our warfighters, as companies who are committed to solving problems for our, our nation, the, in, the infrastructure of our nation, the warfighters of our nation, and achieving those key objectives that we have as a nation, it's incumbent on us to navigate that influence in a positive direction where we can, and then work within the bounds of the frameworks that we have to in the moment. Ideally, those frameworks eventually shift to a more agile format, but Ultimately, we are where we are and we have to operate in that battle space. So all those <laughs> communication within the Pentagon between forces and uh, between branches and aligning all those goals around a logistics kind of front, because ultimately when we talk about the, one of the biggest challenges to scaling across, scaling, scaling any technology or any, any market of technology, any field of technology across any large organization, it really comes down to logistics. It's all about logistics. Um, this is no different. You know, in this case, it's absolutely no different. How do you get solutions to warfighters? How do you get the things that these warfighters need to solve their problems to them? And it's a logistics issue. And so I know, you know, you guys are either active or have all come, you know, out of the military. And is there, you know, there's a lot of companies in, in VR. There's a lot of startups in this space, right? A lot of people that yeah, are right. enamored with this space. There's a lot of, cro- sure. I'm seeing a lot of crossover too between simulation and training companies and entertainment VR companies. I know yeah. Zero Latency here in Australia has done some work with the Australian Army and Hollowgate's working with the German Army. Can companies from outside the industry get into this market? And if so, what do they need to be able to, like we talked about an ATO, like, so you have to learn the jargon and you have to learn the rules, which sounds like a, ma- a massive hill to climb. But is it more inside baseball or are there ways for companies to break into this market? That's kind of a layered onion kind of question. This is a matter of opinion from a customer point of view, not so much a business point of view, but from a customer point of view, uh, things that I'd be looking for in a company is yes, knowing the rules and how to like kind of navigate them is primarily very important because more than likely the customer you're going to find in the military isn't as well versed as the next guy. So you can't rely on your customer base for your knowledge. We see a lot of death of companies 
that rely on their customer to know these systems for them and then give them delivered results. Uh, that's kind of why when we talk like small business innovation research funds, why a lot of them have a death because not necessarily does your customer know all these navigation points and how the DODIs and AFMANs and AFIs are written and what they alleviate to, so they may not, not know. So outside of that, what I would look for is somebody that has a lot of passion and objectives to want to serve me as a DUD member because it's gonna be it's gonna be rough, right? We're gonna have make a first conversation and how are you going to maintain for three years while I try to get you funding? Because that's kind of like the the hard answer to give. You know, if we're starting from scratch, the easiest money I can get you is three years away. If it's if it's a large sum. Now if it's small Small sums we can talk we can talk game, but I I would say objectives, passion, and, and a knowledge of the rules is big three to get to me at least, and that's that. Which is why you're seeing some entertainment companies that have a viable business there, then say, okay, there's something I can move into, and I do have the time to wait and let that business develop over time. That might be why we're seeing that. I think you see kind of twofold. One is you've seen the works take off probably since 2016, 17, trying to reach out, the government reaching out to non-traditional industries. So Bob, like you're saying, they're, they're trying to encourage technology companies to work with the government. I think it's so important that you have dual use because like Sergeant Meyer said, the government um, acquisition process, it's lengthy. And to, to be palmed or to find funding, it could be years out. So for, for technology companies, you have to have a commercial asset as well. You can't be 100% reliant on the government, you know, until you find that partnership that works. And it truly is a partnership because both of us are, are retired military and we still feel the need to serve. And, and we want to make modernization of training for, for the DOD a reality. But it is a give and take and you have to understand the limitations of the government acquisition process and, and understand who those connection points are to help guide you through the process. Yeah, cool. Appreciate that. So speaking of tech companies getting in the space, I think, you know, there's been a lot of media attention around the Microsoft deal with the DOD and HoloLens. And I just want to ask some people on the inside, there's lots of media pundits talking about that that have no idea what's actually, they don't have the context to actually evaluate what happened there. I'd love your opinions on, I don't know if any of you were involved in it, but observing it from whatever your perspective was, what should people make within the VR industry? There was a lot of doom and gloom and people are like, oh, VR is over. It doesn't work. My Microsoft's pulling out. From your perspective, what should people take away from that news? My piece that I, I always say on this is I like to refer to DoD customers as your laziest customer. And, and I don't mean that in like a bad way again, right? What the grunts on the ground expect, they get a piece of equipment, they turn it on, and it just works. And the tech industry is so detached from that because to get a tethered headset, for example, to work, I have to put Steam VR on my computer. I have to put lighthouses up. I need to put that in computer. The computer has to be in specs. And I basically need a whole support department. Now, it's fine and dandy for your your everyday customer. They, they have the drive and the want because they want this thing. They want it to work. They want it to play the games. They'll research the forums. They'll reach out to customer support. But your duty like customer just wants to get it in their hands, turn it on and it's going to work and it's going to work the first time. And if it doesn't work the first time, it's going in the trash. That's the harsh reality. And I think that's what we got with the HoloLens is it, it was an MVP as much as it was a flushed out product. Okay. 
it was the first iteration, so it was an MVP to the DoD. And that at such scale got so much backlash because they didn't account for visually induced motion sickness, the conditions they're in because they're very harsh. A lot of people don't care about the equipment. Some of the laptops we have, I watch people slide them 30, 40 feet under the aircraft instead of walking under the aircraft. So these are things you need to account for when you're designing to somebody in defense. And, you know, I, again, I don't think, I don't think any of us were actually a part of the, the IVAS program, but one of the big challenges is that, and generally speaking, and I can't speak for that program specifically, but we have a contract building augmented reality software with, with the Air Force as well for a different use case. And one of the big challenges you get there is just like what Sergeant Myers says, is that you need to build a, a technology that is so cognitively simple that it's hard to tell that it's a departure from their normal operations. You've got to build a technology that fits the way that workers work. And again, it goes back to user-centered design and actually spending the time throughout every part of that process and, and to understand how people work before you try to change it. Because if you're adding, you know, you add another step to a flight line maintainer's work, right? And if, if especially if it's not a requirement, you're not going to get any traction. You add another step or create any type of friction in that work. You're, you're talking about a job that is dangerous and difficult to begin with. These men and women are out there on the flight line on blacktop. There's no shade out there. It's, it's over 100 degrees at a lot of these places or in other places, it's in the negative degrees Fahrenheit. It's already uncomfortable. They're doing jobs that are difficult, working on large aircraft, also trying to fit themselves into tiny little places to do a job. If you create any more friction in their day, your technology is not going to be adopted and you're not going to have the ability to show how much of a difference you can make. And I think that was one of the challenges there is that there's zero room for error. And if you create an opportunity for human error, you will create an opportunity for in a combat situation for yourself to become a target because you're sitting down worrying about your tech working in, in a combat situation, you're going to face some serious challenges there. And I don't know what, the, again, I wasn't involved in IVAS at all, so I can't speak to that at all. All I can to speak to is our experience. And you've got to be smooth as grease, man. It's got to be co zero additional cognitive load and no friction added. So one of the questions I'm going to ask, CJ, we'll stay with this and I'll, I'll, I'll circle back to you, is what's the advice, and maybe, maybe you can take this, like what's the advice you have? Because while other industries aren't, you know, there's no life or death situations with people using VR in most other vertical markets, right? In most other vertical markets, right? You know, you know like if I'm playing a game, I put on a headset. Unless right, not consumer. Yeah, yeah. 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 We've seen the videos, right? Uh, but I also see that show up everywhere. I see that show up in every single market where the people who are developing it are so intimately familiar with it that they don't understand when you get it into somebody. We call that in, in human-centered design, they call that beginner's mind. Do you have any advice or best practices like that somebody could tangibly take away from this webinar to say, do this one thing or do these two things to try to find those friction points before you get this thing in the market? Because I see that in every single VR vertical that I work in. So one thing, Bob, I was going to say, and it, and it aligns exactly with what you're saying, is return on investment. So when we're looking at the DOD, people think there's an unlimited budget and there's not. And so what we're trying to do with modernized training, we're trying to show that we're enhancing the current training. So you're always going to have that, that classroom trainer. We're trying to make it more accessible, but you have to provide products that are affordable and scalable. So when you're looking at headsets that are thousands of dollars, how can you scale that when you still have people that we're just trying to get them to buy in and see 
the enhancement and the, the fidelity of what's in that 3D immersive environment and the benefits of allowing 24 seven training. So I think that's something that you can have the best technology, but if it's not affordable and you also have to have a glide path, like how are you gonna integrate it? How are you gonna test it? How are you gonna scale it? And you have to have the, the DOD members buying into it and showing how they can incorporate it into their current curriculum or, or their current mission set. Because hopefully we, we expand just from training into the operational side of the house, like Daryl's talking about with the ops tempo, the way it is, we're looking at multi-capable airmen, just-in-time training downrange, where you could have a plane land and you could have a maintainer that's never worked on that system, but that could get spun up in time to say, you know what, I can change that tire. I can work on that engine because I have just-in-time training available at my fingertips. But it all comes down to cost and your return on investment. So, so kind of, you got to look at the long game and kind of work your way backwards. I wanted to add in too that came up is uh, just like a final point. I think uh, a lot of this too for you know designing systems to the military and DOD in general and all these things, I think it's very important. The last little piece for companies that are trying to permeate this barrier is understanding when to say no. I think this survivability mechanism for companies is very hard to say because you know me as a person, if you offer me $10 million to design a rock chip, I'm probably going to figure it out. But as a company, right, and the DoD is very quick to do this. Hey, you designed this thing for us. Can you also do this? And it's real easy to say, yes, you know, I'll take that money and we'll design that. But is your company designed to do that? And will it fail? Because we see a lot that has spread themselves so thin because the customer has a, a wish list that they generate. And at what point do you say no to the money flowing in? That way you have your product have survivability and you don't die on that hill, I think is a factor a lot of people don't consider. Yeah, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are of the ilk of, you know, sell, then figure out how to deliver, right? And in, in complex markets like that, that can, be a, that can be a death knell, yeah. Yeah, we definitely see that a lot in DoD, especially with recent developments of contracts where the company spread themselves thin and then they can't deliver and then we have to kill that program and then start over. It's, it's a sad thing to see. Let's talk about some of the places where this is working right now, right? So you've got some good background there. What are some of the challenges and the overheads? But this is the practicality of VR. So what are some of the practical applications where VR is being used today and how's it working and how's it making a difference? For me, I have a lot of application here and a good way I explain a very viable ROI to people is, is especially in training. There's tons of ROI everywhere else, but I think training is where it scales the most rapidly. Because in the Air Force, we have these trainer aircraft, what we call GITAs. They cost a crazy amount because they're the original price of the aircraft. And then we have to wait for that aircraft to crash or, you know, become non-airworthy at some point and then modify them. Or the other route is to make a model from complete scratch, which is also inherently expensive. So you're looking anywhere between $8 million and $300 million, kind of pick your poison on how much that costs. So a headset costs $1,000. And essentially, I have an aircraft per headset now. So you factor the cost of the initial software. You know, let's say it's between four and even $100 million to get a full digital twin. And now I can buy 1,000 headsets and I'm still under the price of a full aircraft still, 
right? And now I have a thousand of them. And now I can train a thousand airmen at the same time instead of against one asset. So it really, it really scales really fast in training the least. One of the things that you said there that Jaw might have actually hit the floor was between four million and a hundred million dollars for a digital twin. Like I can't get my head around like they can make Avatar for two hundred million dollars, a three-hour three D motion picture. What are some of the challenges in building these assets that, at that level? Because that just like I'm having yeah. a hard time getting my head around that. Avatar static. <laughs> okay, they've decided what it's going to do. It does that, and then in for and to perpetuity, that movie is what that movie is. When Sard Myers talking about when we're talking about a digital twin, we're talking about something that's evergreen, right? There are things called station blocks in aircraft where they make updates to different parts of the aircraft, especially in the cockpits and different places. And so they, they're updated through station blocks. And in these station blocks, could sometimes it could be a very minor change that is completely, that is just visual, or it could be a, a pretty significant change that changes systems in the way that certain things operate. And to me, a digital twin is not just a copy because ultimately a PDF is a digital twin. If we're talking about that, it's a digital twin of a, a page, but ultimately a digital twin is something that evolves with the object that exists in the real world. And so we're talking about a digital copy, both in operation and in the aesthetics that serves multiple functions, everything from the models, to you know, system models like your fuel system or what, whatever the case may be, down to physics, the physics of a flight or the physics of of particular systems. And and when we talk about a hundred million dollar digital digital twin, you also have to take into effect in, into to consideration that there are at least hundreds of thousands of different parts to this to to any aircraft, from a tiny little cotter pin all the way to large machined part pieces and parts. And as a maintainer, a maintainer is someone who works on these aircraft can do a lot of different jobs. It's just a general, a sweeping term. As a maintainer, if you're actually working on a real aircraft on one of those trainers, one of those physical trainers that Sergeant Myers is talking about, talking about. There may be value in you manipulating a bolt that is right in the middle of the aircraft that no one can see on the outside, but your job requires for you to access and either operate or understand how a particular part operates. And so both in complexity and in operation, a digital $100 million digital twin looks something like that. It's not just a 3D model that exists in a stagnant condition that changes and can be distributed into perpetuity. It's essentially a living digital example that evolves with the evolution of the particular real world object and operates in nearly every way like the real world object and can be manipulated and simulated Things can be simulated on that object in, in tons, tons of different ways. Along those lines, another benefit we have with, with virtual reality is the ability to show immersive academics. So the ability to make an aircraft transparent and show the connection points of the different systems. So how the hydraulic system flows, how the electrical, how they, um, how they interact with each other, how the switchology, when you're looking at your fuel lines. So especially for our maintainers and our pilots, um, our pilots have to understand how the aircraft systems work for normal and emergency procedures, but our maintainers to, to be able before you ever step foot out on the flight line to see those connection points and understand what you're working on, understand the hazards, um, 
it's amazing what VR enables that you can't get through a textbook or a PowerPoint presentation and also to let people learn at their own time frame. So it's intimidating in class when you're going through, you know, right after BMT and you're going to tech school, you you don't want to fail. And and as and, and as you're progressing on, VR allows an individual to learn at their own pace and to enhance their skill set. So that way, when it is time to work on that multi-million dollar aircraft, you are comfortable with, with what the operation is and you've asked questions in a classroom. So that way, we're making our, our, our armed forces available and ready when the mission time comes. She, uh, she triggered something for me uh, that I wanted to add on to. On the operation side, it does bring a lot of brevity to that, that information because what she was describing is what we would refer to as like, we have to tabletop a lot uh, when we when we train because we train to a lot of emergency situations. For example, in my career field, let's say a lot of contingencies we plan for is like a munition is going to catch fire and potentially detonate. What's your reaction plan, right? And then it's like, oh, I need to evacuate 4,000 feet because it's 1.1 asset and then I need to call 911. And we say it so much becomes like muscle memory to the brain, but we're not triggering any kind of like emotional response in our brain to see what the actual mechanism is going to do to train because the seriousness of our job isn't as as serious as like an operator and when i say operator like a pararescue or you know cct where they they try to simulate those conditions to a t to like emotional reaction we don't get that in maintenance it's like if this happens what are you going to do oh i'm going to do these things all right but we don't see it and we don't understand what it even happens like so when that visual thing happens for the first time everybody's completely lost because we've just tabletopped it the whole time and described it and we're terrible storytellers it's a unique gift to be a storyteller so so what's happening there the ability you know there's a lot of talk about virtual reality technology being able to track biometrics and cognitive states and things like that with eye tracking and facial tracking and heart rate tracking and and who knows what comes next. There's a shadow side and a bright side to all of these things. Are you guys using any of that yet? Or how do you see the integration with biometrics being used today? Or when do you think it happens and how will we see it come to life? The earlier we can pull analytics, the better we can be. And I think that goes across the board. If we can understand how individuals learn and, and where their strengths are and where their weaknesses to help the instructors and to help them learn their own um, learning methodology, I think as technology advances, we're going to be incorporating that more and more to our advantage. Yeah, cool. The other thing I heard I want to ask about is the integration with peripherals. Like I'm imagining that, you know, you were talking about turning a screw. So, you know, do you need access to a torque wrench that gives actual like, you know, feedback and, and what do you have to develop there? And what are some of the challenges in, in, that you see in, in that playing out? That last piece is what I call the last phase of immersion integration into a unit. The first phase is software. Second phase is your HMD. Your third phase is some kind of way to bridge gap computational needs like pixel streaming or some kind of capability to offset your GPU usage off the device until they you know, find a way to micronize uh, transistors again for a good price. And then fourth is some kind of a haptic feedback and integration, like you mentioned. And there's a lot of tools on the market right now. I just don't know if they've reached a maturity rate to be scalable because right now there's a series of gloves that can simulate that and interfaces that could um, but they're in the seventy thousand dollar or more range 
to do that. But they are the missing link for adaptability because the counterpoint a lot of people make is, well, where are they learning the dexterity and like the textile feel of that environment? anymore with that you're you're on there i would challenge the only part is to say that they're they're too far off because you have solutions like i'll go ahead and drop the brand haptics they're right there at the level i think they're they're right there at, at ready to scale or very close to it we're either at or almost at an inflection point in those places in any case you you weigh the value of that in in every single module that you create and it goes back to user-centered design right it goes back to human-centered design use whatever you want to call it is understanding the value that each part of your module brings not overdoing it not underdoing it because you can absolutely overdo vr and you can drive the cost through the roof you can build in functionality capability and experiences that add uh, little to no value and there's a balance there right so understanding that and then Weighing it against all of the resources, time, and the actual goal of any experience is, is really critical in that particular case. Yeah, interesting. Now, you mentioned pixel streaming, Sergeant, and, and at ITSEC last year, I think there was a big demo by AT&T where they had a 5G core you know, in the Orlando Convention Center and demoed pixel streaming. We've been talking about 5G and XR, I think, since as it being the thing that was going to change everything since 2017, I think I first talked about it in a keynote. And here we are in 2023, and we still can't get it working on our phones. What's happening there? How important is it? When are we going to see it? What changes is it going to enable you guys to, to do? The big thing with that, and we are currently kicking off a server with HTX Labs to kind of explore this research and development to see if we can delineate some kind of solution. There is a lot on the market today to start facilitating that when back five, six years ago, there just wasn't. So the big thing is NVIDIA has an open source product for cloud xr that helped tremendously to integrate with their gpus because i would still say the footprint was the big thing because five six years ago you would be talking one-to-one gpu scaling so you'd still need one gpu per headset and then you need to put that over a network and according to several sources you can only put 14 headsets to a node so now if you're if you're trying to do enterprise, you need 10 to 20 nodes per building to support those headsets. There's a lot of layers to the onion. And to add to that internet speeds, you need dedicated internet speeds to make it work effectively. And then today we're starting to see where with the new GPUs coming online, like the A6000, you can run two headsets to a GPU, a 24 gig GPU. And now your footprint is scaling down literally in half for that server unit if you do on-prem and off-prem servers are improving by the day and their accessibility by increased fiber being ran all over the country. So I think all the pieces of the pie are slowly falling into place. And I think we're really on the eve of making it work. And then that's my objective before I leave 363 here in Shepard Air Force Base. So anybody want to want to give another angle to that and, and maybe touch on when do you think this stuff's actually going to show up in the real world, oftentimes, you know, the military is, you know, this stuff is being incubated and developed to a true R&D sense, you know, in the military world. And then it, it trickles down to the rest of other industries and other verticals. How do you see pixel streaming and 5G and the ability to offload into the cloud, the processing power required to do these really amazing immersive experiences? Yeah, it'll be adopted when it's funded. That's, that's really what it comes down to, right? Um, 
we can we can say that the technology is there or not there, but if the funding doesn't exist and it doesn't get deployed, it doesn't get scaled, you can cibber things to death all day long, right? You can cibber SBIR, Small Business Innovation Research Grant. You can do that all day, but it's a research grant. It is not a deployment. It doesn't do those things. There essentially needs to be line item funding in NDAAs if we're, if they are, or that's one path. I can't, I'm not going to say there needs to be, that's, that's not my place to say that, but you know, for things to scale like that, it's got to be a priority. And when they are a priority, they get priorities, get funded. And when funding comes, that's when things get deployed and scaled. And until that day comes, then we can, then we'll just, then companies will just have to continue to piece part things together and, you know, duct tape solutions to get to our warfighters. Ultimately, that's really what a lot of this comes down to. There are a lot of solutions that can solve a lot of problems, but ultimately there are higher priorities, apparently, you know, that funding goes to. And how much do those things affect the lives of our warfighters day to day, right? How much does that actually benefit the people that protect our nation, that do the work that builds that's in our infrastructure? It comes down to priorities. And if funding aligns with priorities, it'll if it aligns with aligns with talk, if funding aligns with what really one of the most, you know, in my opinion, the most important thing, and that's that's warfighter well-being when it, in the DOD, because without the warfighters, it doesn't matter how many planes you have, doesn't matter, none of that stuff matters if you don't have if you're not taking care of your warfighters. When funding aligns with priorities, or when when those priorities align, that's when you'll see a lot of these technologies that solve problems to scale and to be adopted, because I think they do solve the problems where they sit now. I don't know how much more needs to be proven out there, because there there are hundreds of companies that have solved significant problems using these technologies. Companies have identified the, the barriers, right? They've identified the things that are holding up the actual application, things like connectivity as a great example. And yet over and over again, you get funding, funding gets pulled. You get funding, funding gets pulled. Priorities shift and all this type of stuff. Ultimately, if, if your warfighter is your priority, then the funding's not going to get pulled. So that's really the, the crux of it because you've got companies that care. You've got companies who are building these technologies. You've got warfighters who are committed to being the champions in, internally to tackle these problems, putting in the extra time. Sergeant Meyer's a great example. He puts in tons and tons of personal time. And there are hundreds of other airmen, soldiers, Marines, Coast Guardsmen, sailors that are doing the same thing, putting in hundreds of per hours of personal time for their soldiers, sailors, and Marines. And it's hard for them to do this without having the backing. And their leaders are backing them, but it's got to come from higher up. There's got to be the funding for them to do that. Just from a high level, it's not done yet. And that's really what drives everything. One of the things I'm sorry, that, seems... that was a soapbox. You got me on my, I'm no, sorry. That was, that was, <laughs> it was awesome. And, and I think, you know, it, it begs another question then that, I, that I'm going to ask and, you know, which is a lot of times to get things done, you know, government, there's a lot of top down hierarchy, right? It's the way the system is designed and, and there's a lot of lobbying happening, happening from these technology companies that are building this core tech, but it's all around, you know, protecting the media business and, and not having government legislation. Is there lobbying happening at this level to, to, help the people who actually control the budgets understand the benefits of this? You know, Mike, Michael, you uh, talked about storytelling that, you know, we're not great storytellers <laughs> and, and that's probably where lobbyists come in. Is there anything happening there to promote this at the, the political level to try to free up budget, to move this stuff faster? There is several things in the recent NDAA that was signed that is supposed to spark a lot of the initial funding. If you pay attention to some of the verbiage in there, there's three services that are primarily listed for some kind of XR technology, the Navy, the Army, and the Air Force, and they have their own unique line items. But if you notice, it's not really a commit to fund, it's a commit to investigation, more or less. But that is going to spark the conversation and also put a kind of a peephole, really, for lobbyists to kind of tear apart into 
and lobby leveraging those line items, I, I, I personally believe. And I think we'll see this next NDA potentially kind of expand on those and maybe we'll see some funding or probably the safe option is more in investigative work. Um, and what's an I, NDA for those who don't know that um, terminology? National Defense Authorization Act. That's the big budget thing that gets yeah. pushed through Congress. And... and and we've seen over the past couple of years, so the chief of staff of the Air Force, General C.Q. Brown, he, um, he has the Accelerate change. It's out there. Like we have our leaders at the most senior level are pushing for modernization. But like Daryl said, the next step is funding. And and SIBRs are fantastic to continue to grow our, our industrial uh, baseline. But then it's that, that transition from the research and development to actual production and scaling. And that's where we see the techs available, Bob, like you said. But now it's how do we how do we get it from a research level into the hands of the the airmen, into the hands of the sailors and make it affordable. And, and when we were talking cloud, we saw a lot of movement with cloud availability now for the government, but the cost is so high. So we, we have to keep things in check to make it affordable, because when you have squadrons that are trying to modernize, they have a limited budget. And so if we outprice what we need, then then it's not achievable. That last little piece, I think, is the big secret is making it affordable because a lot of companies do kind of come in swinging, believing there is that unlimited budget. But your ultimate customer is a unit and units just don't have funding. They're not allocated like that. So if you come to them with a multi-million dollar solution, you're talking to the wrong person sometimes. That big funding comes from numbered air forces that comes from match com level that comes from half level that's really where those heavy swingers come in so if your solutions in those marks you know and you expect unit adoption like people on the ground adopting it the money's just not there in the near term right things can happen but those are one-offs and not not very likely yeah and i think people hear you know stories about you know toilet seats and hammers costing you know ridiculous amounts of money and they don't actually understand the way it works and this has been a great glimpse kind of behind the curtain of what people don't understand about, you know, about this market. And it's been fascinating. I did save the most important question for last. And I want to go around. I'm going to start with you, Sergeant. Top Gun Maverick, should it be considered for best picture? Should it win? Should it be grounded? What's your take? So I really loved it. And I would love to see the maintainer's side to see how upset they were when he bent the frame of the aircraft. That's all, that's all I wanted. <laughs> Because uh, I, I have a very quick story. Uh, we had a, a young LT bear, uh, bend the frame of an aircraft once, but it wasn't very extreme. There's varying levels, right? But he came out with cases of water and a speed handle, and he knew what he had to do. So, <laughs> <laughs> CJ, Top Gun Maverick. Absolutely loved it. As a 21-year Air Force vet, I'm still so mad that the Air Force turned it down and the Navy scooped it up. But it completely reblued me. I love seeing it. Um, seeing a 30-year colonel flying was a little hard for me to believe, but um, absolutely, I thought it was a great film. Daryl, last word. Uh, I loved the movie, uh, but I'm an Army guy, right? So there's there, that's where my my. Uh... My loyalties lie. And for, for all my bombers friends out there, I, you know, I'm going to get some flack for this, but I've heard it said before, fighters make movies, bombers make history. I'm just saying. So. <laughs> well, that's a great mic drop moment. 
And on behalf of everybody watching, I want to thank you all for your service, um, both past and present. It's really meaningful, and, and I'm not sure if that recognition happens um, quite thank enough. You. And I just want to recognize the service to, to your company to your country you. and pushing, you know, and, and for the XR community, continuing to push this forward in ways that are going to actually make a difference. So really appreciate it. This has been, I'm Bob Cooney. Thank you all for joining. This has been the practicality of VR series where we're bringing you kind of deep dive insights into different vertical markets about how VR technology is working now and into the future. And um, we look forward to seeing you on the next edition.